found guilty, I would have got 20 years in jail. So um, it's sort of fitting, I think, that if I didn't got the not guilty, I would have, uh, the channel would have been no more. So I thought, right, let's change the name over, you know? Really? Yes, indeed. So what I had uh, that? massive drug conspiracy. So, um, yeah, real bad one. So there'd been five, five drivers had been yeah. caught and pled guilty prior to my trials. So, um, yeah, it was a real sticky case. My co-defendant just got 18 and a half years and a three million pound confiscation, which he's getting an extra seven years for. So he ended up with 25 and a half years, which I would have got the same, unfortunately. So I pray he gets some success in his appeal, you know? It's a tragic thing. Yeah, my mate Joey Pyle, he got lucky. Joey was locked up, I don't know, seven, eight months. They had a trial about what there, four guys, but they found not guilty. Thank God. So if people don't know um, or haven't seen, Ori was actually the first interview I ever did on KRN TV previously. So if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend you go back and see it. And then the second interview I did was actually Joey Pyle Jr., who Ori introduced me to. So two fantastic interviews that uh, I highly recommend you go to see it. So, um, yeah, thank God, um, obviously, for my success and thank God for young Joey's success as well. Um, and yeah. They, they were using my name at Joey's trial. Fuck, you know. Telling that he was involved in international crime with me. <laughs> well, well I'd, I'd hate to go back to court now with the amount of people that I speak to. They're trying to say that I was part of some yeah. international cartel these days. But um, So you haven't knocked the smoking on the head then? Holy shit. Yeah. And there was... Uh, did you go? There was a big event over the weekend for Dave Portney. I, I did didn't go. go? To, no, I didn't go to it. Unfortunately, I had to look after my little boy. Um, but I saw it. That was on um, Friday or Saturday, wasn't it? A few of my friends went to it. I saw Joey was there. Yeah. So yeah, yeah tra tragic, tragic. What happened to Dave Courtney? So um, yeah, rest in peace to Dave Courtney. But um, so yeah. how's things? How's things with you generally, or are you well? I'm great. Yeah, in good I don't health. Know how the fuck I do it? I'm good. Fantastic. I'm good. God bless. Well, long may it continue. Yeah. Now, since, since last time, um, it's good to see that you started a YouTube channel now. So tell the people what the YouTube channel is called, Ori. Yeah, it's uh, Stories with Ori. It's like a variety show. I'm not doing a lot of that gangster shit. Because most of the gangsters I knew to are rats, or you call them over there, grasses. Okay? And, you know, my, my opinion of that situation is that these rats, with all their followers, are making other rats. They're telling these kids who are following them that it's okay to be a grass. You follow me? If you if you look, there's only, I think, uh, of, of the gangsters here in the United States, the only two that are not rats is me and Joey Merlino. All the others are rats. It's, it's absolutely insane. Thank God we haven't got to the stage of that in this country, because in America, they're unashamed 
of it as well that they are almost proud of being rats and screaming it from the rooftops you don't get that in this country no one's come out of the uh, the hiding they're all disappeared into the shadows thank god where they should that they deserve to be underneath a rock or under a bridge you know right but um it's absolutely insane and in that's why if you hear me i always have the utmost respect for the gangsters over there in london absolutely um so today like i said before previously we went through your story in depth so today i want to sort of throw a few names at you and talk about your relationship with them but before we start um obviously people first the, the link for ori's youtube channel will be in the description and also the link for ori's book the accidental gangster will be in the description as well so please go over and support ori and get the book well worth it fantastic read but um for people who don't know you were a very successful businessman in the insurance business so how did someone who was a successful businessman end up falling into crime and not just minor crime, into serious organized crime and end up getting convicted in the Re Mafia Rico indictment in 2008? How does something like that happen, Ori? Well, you know, and actually, my first indictment was in the insurance business. In 19, it was out of Syracuse Federal Court. 1979, okay? And they tried to make that an organized crime case based upon the fact that I was friends with Meyer Lansky and Sonny Frances. But there was no way that was an organized crime case. And more than likely, if I was not, affiliated with Sonny Franchet, that indictment might have never happened, should have never happened. But it did, and I ended up getting five years probation on that one. So, Jesus, so, so one of my next questions... That was my first federal indictment. Yeah, so I was going to ask, um, obviously, how you got introduced to Sonny, and I thought it would have been a little bit later, but your relationship with Sonny went all the way back to the 70s, did it? So you ended up having a 40-year relationship with Correct. him. Correct. And how it began, and it's in my book, okay? It's in my book, The Accidental Gangster, which available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or autographed copies on my website. What happened was I was involved with a company called Polyglyco, with a gentleman named, who owned it named Walter Fison. Out of Scarsdale, New York. Walker, <laughs> no need to ever sign your car again, guaranteed for three weeks, for three years, sold at automobile dealers. And Walker would have warranty. Now his warranties were getting stolen on the bottom of the pack. And he put his brother in law, who happened to be the brother in law also of Michael Franchise, he gave him. Nassau County and New York, Long Island. And they were stealing it and using a different product. And Walter found out about it. And then Walter started getting death threats. So he came to me and I contacted my friend, Frank Russo, who put me with Lou Perry. Lou Perry uh, was a casting director in New York. And he's the guy who discovered Dean Martin 
and Jerry Lewis and give them their start. And he called me up. He says, I'm picking you up at 7 o'clock. He picked me up and brought me to a restaurant on 2nd Avenue, Trattatoria, Siciliana. And this is where I met, for the first time, Sonny Frances. And he was there with, with his wife, Tina, his daughter, Tina, his daughter, Gia, and his son, Johnny. <clears throat> and I sat next to him. And if you read my book, I'm allergic to certain frisses out of certain water. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I explained to Sonny what the problem was. He said he would look into it. I gave him my phone number in upstate New York to my office and my phone number to my condo in Florida, where I was staying at that time. And then I got word that I had to go into New York. He found out. And there was a sit-down at the Russian tea room. Me, Walter, Lou Perry, Frank Russo, Sonny sat directly across from me. And next to him was Michael Francis. You know Michael, correct? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my first sit-down. And during the sit-down, I said something to Sonny, which he gave me the coldest fucking looking you ever could see. I mean, it looked to kill. I was dead. And he says, don't think for one moment I don't understand what's going on here. He says, you're young. I'm going to forget this. And he sided with us. We were right. He sided with us, and, you know, we both parties went away happy. Uh, but when we walked outside the Russian tea room, that's when Sonny grabbed me, and uh, walked me to the corner of Broadway and 57, and said, kid, I like you, you got boss. He said, for now on, you're with me. And I want you and your family and my own for Christmas. And that began a relationship of over 50 years until he died. I was talking to Sonny right up to three days before his death. And I was the one who announced his death. Fair play. Sonny is an absolute huh? legend. Sonny is a legend. And uh, I wish I'd had the chance to speak to him or meet him or even know him like yourself. Um, yeah. And so talk to us about what it was like dealing with someone like Sonny Francis. Uh, was he a gentleman to deal with? Was he fair? Was he a bully? Was he intimidating? Was he trying to put the squeeze on it? Obviously, you said it was a 50-year no, friendship. Sonny, Sonny was, he was fair, very smart. Don't think somebody like him is, is stupid. He's very intelligent. He could decipher right from wrong and make that judgment. And, uh, you know, it's one of the things that made him who he is. And 
There was, used to be a rumor. You ever had to go to a sit down? You want to be with Sonny Franchese because you're going to win. <laughs> but uh, I I had a good relationship with him. Uh, I mean, you know, when I when I went to New York, Sonny lived with me at my hotel. For that went on for a few years. And I just so happened every time he got off, Sonny was violated more than anybody else ever in the federal system here in the United States. And every time he got out of prison, I was in New York. So yeah, we were close and we ended up getting indicted together. Crazy. Yeah, no, what they did to him, the way they framed him and the way they kept recording him was just a disgrace. He didn't do himself any favors, obviously, by constantly associated with um, criminals and stuff like this when he came out, but he shouldn't have been in that predicament in the first place. And he, that's what he was. So, how was he not going to associate with them when he'd been brought up with them all his life? I'm just another man, that's all. I ain't looking for no glory, I ain't looking for no credit. What'd you do after the army? Same thing. I went on the street. Who's that? Hey, honey. Well, I, I, I had a little money. I won gambling in the army. I took it home. And I stopped buying businesses, you know. Then they opened up a club, another club, another club, and I stopped making big money. So I know that Sonny had a lot of business interests. Um, and obviously, over the last few years, it's like Michael, his son's got the term of being like the highest earning mafia figure ever. Do you think that he inherited a lot of his? financial interest from Sonny, um, obviously while Sonny was away, obviously for 90% of the time, wasn't he? Do you think Michael inherited a lot of his stuff and his success from Sonny? Uh, uh, yeah, definitely. He had to learn a lot from Sonny. Michael is a very intelligent guy, and I got to say that for him. Uh, he's very intelligent, and he knows how to make money. Yeah, 100%. Uh, 100%. Michael doesn't seem like your average wise guy or criminal figure. He's university educated and he does seem very shrewd and he comes across very well. Even when he's saying something that isn't true, Michael comes across in such a convincing way in order to turn you, you know? Well, you know, there's, you know, Michael and I had a big view. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of that. He's living his father's life. He's very jealous of his father. He hasn't seen Sonny in a year. He proclaims he's there all the time. He claims I use his fucking name. You think I'm going to use a rat's name? And you show me anybody that calls somebody else a rat, they're the rat. Uh, you know, I'm glad he came out with some lies about me. I don't like Ori. I'm going to tell you a story about Ori. I never heard of him until I came out to California and my brother started hanging out with him. And I know they were doing some drug stuff together, so I chased Ori. That's number one. Secondly, I had somebody in the FBI who came to me and told me, don't go near this guy, Ori, because he plays both, both sides of the street. He's an informant. And, and I had a lot of truth about him. I knew a lot. And, uh, but you know, we started that war and then I said, I got nothing to gain from this thing. Nobody's paying me any money. What the fuck do I got to gain? 
And I ended it. Because, you know, I'm at the point in my life, if I don't need a battle with somebody, I'm not going to. If I have to have a battle, I'll definitely go to battle. No question about it. <laughs> but, you know, we ended it, Michael and I, we talked occasionally. Uh, you know, he's getting ready, he's doing a tour again over there in England, uh, beginning next month. Yeah, indeed. I'm actually going to go to one of them. Um, Sean sent Sean Atwood, who uh, I introduced you to, sent me a couple of tickets. So I will be going to that next month. Like I said, I'm a big fan of Michael. I think he comes across fantastically. His YouTube channel is very professional. There's only one thing that I sort of disagree with Michael on. It's the cooperation sort of stuff. That I think that he's better just to leave it and just to agree, yeah, I did cooperate, rather than talking about the semantics of it. No one did this time. No one did this time. I don't know what the situation is in America, but in England, it's a black and white subject you either cooperate or you don't it doesn't matter if people got a thousand years or people got no time if you sat down with the other well, side okay so in in england what would you folks think of michael that would definitely be a cooperator to put it politely or a snitch or a rat as they would he say would definitely be a grace because he did he proffered people don't understand what proffering is and then being on a witness standpoint, the figure, Michael actually did both. <laughs> uh, you know, he's got his own story about what happened with Norby Walter, but it's a matter of public record. He was on a witness stand testifying against him. Uh, you know, Joey and I are thinking of putting together a one-time event and a big event over in London. And having guys like Freddie Foreman and other older gangsters who are alive, that Joey's good friends with all of them, and I know almost all of them. And a one-time event, and we've been discussing that there. Uh, it's in talking terms at this point. But the only way I would come to England would be I'm not a guy, I'm not going out there and do 10 different things. I'm getting too old for that, you know? And uh, not enough money in it anyway. Of course, you definitely should come over and it'd be great to meet you face to face. And um, yeah, it, I'd support you in whatever way you could do. Yeah, I'd like uh, to meet like you. I'd like to meet, I'd like to meet Sean. <laughs> and um, real quickly, one of my questions was going to be, how did you end up, obviously, for people that don't know, you ended up becoming great friends with Joey Powell Sr., who was sort of the reputed boss of the London underworld for decades upon decades, and real serious man, a real gentleman at the same time, and a top, top businessman. How did you become, uh, how did you, how did you introduce to Joey, and how did you become such good friends with Maureen? I met Joey through Danny Sims. Danny Sam and Joey were managing Mark Morrison. Now, Danny Sims is the guy that discovered Bob Marley. He was big in the record business and very well known. When he was in London, he was under Joey. When he was here in California, he was under me. And when he was in New York, he was under Joe Piney of the Gambino family. 
And they had a record deal with Warner Brothers for Mark Morrison. And they sent them here to Los Angeles and asked me to watch over him and make sure that he went to the studio when he was supposed to be gone. And we did. And I had my son watch over Mark and be with him, you know, they're roughly the same age. And uh and Joey and I, we just we hit it off like brothers. And next thing you know, Joey and I were on the phone five, six times a day. He would call me up, <coughs> he'd be in a pub, and he put every every guy in the pub on the phone with me. And then I finally started going over there. And I mean, Joey and I, we were this close. Anything that he needed out here in this country, I would handle for him. Anything I needed elsewhere, Joey could handle for me. And right up until his death, Joey and I were closer than brothers. And his son, Joey Jr., is like my third son. That's how close I am with Joey Jr. And now I'm close with his children. <laughs> so That's you know it's just something that you know there's no better people and I met a lot of gangsters all over the world there is no better people than Joey Pyle Joey Pyle Jr. in my opinion these are real men men of men and I can't say enough about you guys, all you guys in England. And if you hear a lot of my other interviews I do, I speak more highly of the guys in England than I do of the guys in this country. And particularly because you guys, how you handle rats, rats, you know, in this country, they began with the Woodside program, and now these guys don't even go on the Woodside program. They go on a witness stand, they testify against you and 20 other people, and they still live in the same place in the neighborhood, and nothing happens to them. And, you know, it was not like that back before the 60s. Somebody no. was a government informant. Of course. I mean, you probably, people wouldn't believe the day that someone like Sammy the Bull Gravano, if they heard in his heyday that this guy was going to be on the internet, obviously it wasn't around at the time on TV, trying to become a celebrity and all this sort of stuff, and he grasped on John Cotter. You can't make this stuff up. It's absolutely unbelievable. Right. Um, so going back slightly to... Uh, Obviously, Michael made some accusations, obviously, that you were involved in the drug business and that you were supplying John, Francis. Um, but how, how was your relationship with John? Did you have a personal relationship with him? And obviously, what what's your uh, response? That is total bullshit. All right. I'm the guy that kept drug dealers away from John. I'm the guy that bailed John out of prison, out of jail out here. John was a junkie. I could tell you stories of John with a fucking needle in his arm 
on my bathroom floor. Okay. I can tell you a story of in Brooklyn where Frankie Campy found him in these dope houses. Terrible. All right, for Michael to say that, and Michael knows he was wrong. Okay. His brother was a junkie way before he met me. Of course, I mean, I only watched that, is it a newsstand documentary? I watched it, um, I only watched it this week, actually, and I thought it was a fantastic documentary on Sonny Francis that you featured in. Obviously, it was based on John and Michael, and I thought that was a great documentary there. And obviously, for people who don't know, what, Sonny, that, what, the one they did on Newsday? Yeah, Newsday. Huh? And yeah, for people that don't know, John ended up wearing a, a wire on his dad, Sonny Francis, while he was driving him around for a year or two, which is... Terrible, you know, obviously. Yeah, he wore a wire against me. Crazy. He wore a wire against me, yeah. So, so John, when he was wearing a wire against you, he didn't manage to get you caught up in anything, thank God. Well, one of the reasons I got indicted, too. Oh, Jesus. So that was part of the, the some of the main yeah, evidence. Of I your... heard those things. I heard those things. Johnny had no reason in the world to become an informant. He became sober. <clears throat> I'm the guy that first found out that Johnny was an informant. What happened was Johnny is sobered up. Now, if I was a guy selling drugs to Johnny, would Johnny invite me to his first anniversary when they get those buttons or whatever they call them at sober living places? No. I was the one he invited me and my son, and we went, okay? And he said, I'm so happy. My uncle and my cousin are here. Hopefully, I'm allowed in his home again. And he was, okay? okay. He was sober. But then, Sonny called me up and asked me to check out a car that Johnny was buying for somebody in the program. And I called John. He said, yeah. He said, I'll bring the car over. I'll be there tomorrow. The next day, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And he tells me, look, I had to come to Pasadena to pick the car up. I'm staying here overnight, Uncle. Uh, I'll be at your place tomorrow morning with the car. Next morning, no Johnny. I'm calling. His voicemail was full. Sonny and his mother, Tina, were calling. They're calling me. The only thing we could think of is Johnny fell off the wagon. All right? And normally when he would do that, he'd be knocking on my door looking for 40 bucks. But that didn't happen. So Sonny called me and asked me to come back to New York. I went back. He picked me up. We went to the Warwick. He stayed at the Warwick with me. We had a meeting with other guys that came to my suite at the Warwick. <laughs> I only flew in for a couple of days. When I was leaving, 
Me and Sonny were standing in front of the hotel, waiting for Sonny's driver to come pick him, waiting for my car to take me to the airport. And I told Sonny, Sonny, I got a good private investigator. Let me pay him a few bucks, see if they can find Johnny. He said, nah. He said, let me think about it. He said, it's probably going to be a waste of money. Now his car comes, my car comes, I go to the airport. I check in at Kennedy Airport. I go up, and I always try to go into the men's room and have a cigarette before my flight. <clears throat> now I go in the men's room. I come out, boom, two guys, young guys. Or I go, yeah. My first thought, there might be friends of my sons, and I'm on the same flight as them. Then they pull out their badges, FBI. We want to talk to you. They says, you can stop looking for Johnny. He's with us. I said, well, that's good to know. I said, I'm going to have to call his mother and father and let them know where their son is. They said, we prefer you not to. I said, well, I'm going to. And they said, Ori, we're going to give you, this is your last chance to come work with us. Otherwise, this is going to be your last flight on a commercial airline. I said, go fuck yourself. I'm not working for you. I went to the payphone. I called Tina and John, uh, Sonny. Let them know that their son was working for the FBI. I'm the one who found that information related to Sonny and Johnny's mother, Tina. And the FBI were correct. That was my last commercial air flight. The next time I was on Conair being brought back to Brooklyn. Being in ter terrible. And so did you know from that first moment, did you think you'd said enough compromising stuff with Johnny that you knew that you were going to end up going to jail with them? Or did you think that they were just trying to scare you at the time? Did you realize how serious it was at the time? Well, what we, what we did find out that Johnny was actually an informant back here in Los Angeles for the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, and he was wearing wire on me. We found that out during my case in Brooklyn. <clears throat> so Johnny had been informant for a long time, which happens with a lot of junkies because they get money from the FBI. And this is why you just can't have them around you. Anyone who's got a drug problem is... Uh... They talk about the weakest link in the chain and the people with the drug right. problem is certainly that. So, um, yeah, if anyone's got wrapped around. At trial, at trial, when Johnny was on the stand, U.S. Attorney asked him, who are your father's, some of your father's friends? The very first name he comes out with, he says, Ori Spadel has been friends with my father for over 35 years. What does Ori Spado do? Ori Spado is a drug dealer, which is bullshit. 
I did do marijuana. I had 500 pounds every two weeks flown from Arizona to New York. Okay. That's a good thing. I admit that. Huh? <laughs> I admit a, that, marijuana. Yeah. But anyway, when he gets cross-examined, the attorney says, you said Mr. Spader was only a drug dealer and never did anything else in his life. Yeah, that's correct. What about the time Mr. Spader sold insurance? Oh, I forgot about that. What about Mr. Spado when he provided all the entertainment to the Queen Mary? Oh, I forgot about that. It's a matter of record. I got the court transcripts. What about when Mr. Spado was working with Andrea Bocelli? He said, or he knew Andrea Bocelli? He never told me. I would have loved to meet Andrea. That's the testimony that he gave in court. Yeah, so he was terrible on the stand, as you'd expect, completely unreputable. But um, he, he was there. He was he was terrible on the stand, and you know, I never felt comfortable around it because of the fact that he was a junkie. So I never divide divulged much information to him about anything that I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank God. And um, so what sentence was it that you actually got, Ori? And what age were you at that point? In, is it 2008 or 2009 you got convicted, I guess? To, to 2008, I was 63 years old. I got five years. Uh, they gave me five years for a 924C gun charge. Minimum mandatory sentencing. Okay. The only way to break a minimum mandatory sentencing is by becoming an informant, which obviously I did not. So I did my 62 months, and I got out at the age of 68 years old. Fair play to you, take and it now, like a man. That's 11 years ago. And how difficult must it be going to jail? Obviously, it's, it's tough at the best of times, but going to jail in your 60s for a sentence like that, which is just way over the top, and it, I'm sure it would have been months if it wasn't caught up with these mafia figures and trying to... i got to tell you something. It probably kept me alive. I was walking the yard seven miles a day, and I got in shape. <laughs> Somebody asked me, oh, you look good. I said, doing time in prison helps you. <laughs> of course. And so it was a tough time then. You didn't have any real bad times in there. Nothing bad happened. No violence, no fights or anything like this. No, no. I was well respected in prison. I was in general population at all times. And because I was not a rat, I was respected. Of course, you're and a stand-up man. Zero problem. When people had problems in prison, they came to me. And Sonny, was he, he was on the same case as you, and he got convicted as well in the same case. Yeah, Sonny got convicted. I was a bad guy. Not bad? Yeah. My mother said I was bad since I was born. She said I was bad when I was in the stomach. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, he went to a different, he went to uh, Devon, Massachusetts, to a medical facility. <laughs> and did you make yeah. any good friends while you were in prison? Weren't you inside with Charles Carniglia um, at a certain point, who's obviously, for people who don't know, was... Charles Carniglia and I uh, became very close at uh, MDC Brooklyn. And uh, he writes me occasionally. He's, he's got a life sentence. He's in Canaan, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he writes me, and once in a while, he'll call me. Uh, try to do some things and try to help him. Uh, but there's really not much we could do on that case. Yeah, no, shout out to Charles Carniglia, take it like a man. Um, and again, it was the informants that put him away, wasn't it, for all that time? Um, oh, he, just, he, had, he had fucking so many informants. I think that they had 97 informants ready to testify against Charles Carniglia. 97. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane. It's just so rife, this informant stuff. It's just for anyone who's considering getting into a life of crime, it's not about how staunch you are. The people around you are going to snitch on you. Don't do it. Just go down the legit route. You're going to have a much easier, better life. There's no fast track to get money. And if there is... Uh, you know what I, I try to teach the young to stay out of life of crime. We live in a different world today. Everybody's got a camera. You know, back in the day, when we were together in the old days, if somebody had a camera, we left the room because more than likely it was law enforcement. Yeah, of course. Now uh, today, everybody's got a camera. They got them on the corner, every corner, every store. No matter where you go, your picture's being taken. How are you going to get away with anything today? Of course. You're not. And so earlier you mentioned obviously being in LA and being in the sh show business. Um, you had a lot of dealings with some infamous and famous characters. Um, one of them you end up having dealings with was Suge Knight. Um, talk to me about how you met Suge Knight and your dealings with Suge and how was he? I met Suge. How did I? Hmm. It's really funny. There was a guy in the music business out of London named Ron Winters. He was pretty big. And Shook had given him the rights to distribute Death Row in England. And I met Ron Winters through Joey Pyle on a different situation. He supposedly, I had a bunch of, uh, uh, in those days, videos, VHS, okay? And he wanted to buy them. It was like a quarter of a million dollars. And I'm wired your money. I wired your money. Here's the key. He would give you a fucking, you know, the numbers you need to prove he wired the money. But he never fucking wired it. He was a master at it. And I was going to kill this fuck. And I find out <clears throat> through a producer that he's in town. And when he would come in town, he never checked in the hotel under his name. He used a different name. So 
My friend had a meeting with him at the Beverly Walsh. I said, I'm going to be at the bar. I said, when you have your meeting, come down to the bar, tell me what room. I'm going to go up and throw that fucker out of his window. When the producer gets up to the room, Ron Winters is having a meeting with Suge Knight. So he tells Suge who I am, and then I'm downstairs, and I want to throw this guy out the window. Suge comes down and introduces himself to me, and that's how we met. And he asked me, he says, please. He said, this guy owes me a lot of money. He said, you and I will make money, more money than what's involved over here. Please don't go throw him out the window. I says, okay. So Shuck and I, at that point, we became friends. Uh, we would see each other. We meet at the Four Seasons a lot. We both hung out there. And uh, then he was not getting his money from one winter. He called me. So Joey, I called Joey. Joey sent some guys over there. And we made a deal. We got the first million, we got a million dollars from Ron Winters. When we got it, Sugar was back in prison. But the money was wired to Sugar. And uh, the next day he called his lawyer and sent our commission. And I sent half to London right away. Now, Joey and my son were supposedly put on the visit, Joey Jr. Joey Jr. flew here to visit so he could visit Shook in prison because we could have continuously got money. Shook's office tells me they put him on the visiting list. So I was in New York at the time. Joey Jr. flies in. He's with my son. They had to fly someplace up in Northern California, then rent the car and drive way off to this fucking prison. And guess what? When they get there, they're not on the visiting list. Fuck's sake. So, but Sugar and I, we made friends and, uh, you know. And how were your dealings with Shig then? Was he a gentleman or because he gets a reputation of being a terrible bully? Uh, but you didn't have any of those issues with him, like I said, your first business dealing with him never, was very pleasant. Never. He, he was a lot of respect he had. You know, Shug, Shug was a, a sharp guy in that respect that he understood the life and respect and honor and loyalty. He understands those things. Uh, but then he doesn't understand that a lot of the things that he did created this reason why he's back in prison. Of course. Well, shout out to Shug Knight. He's a real fucking legend in his lifetime. And I hope that he can somehow fix his situation or at least make it slightly better and end up seeing some of his life out of jail because it doesn't look great at the moment um, right? from where I'm sitting. And someone else um, who's infamous in the hip-hop world was Haitian Jack. And you end up getting to know Haitian, and even more than that, you end up having Haitian 
Jack live with you for a year. So you must have been incredibly close for to him. For a year, he slept on my couch. Slept on my couch and extorted money from White Club John, Akon, and other people in the music business. That was his start of claim. That was his pain to claim. Well, fair play to him. He did well to do that. And in terms of um, your relationship with him, obviously you must have been benefiting in some way to allow him to stay on your couch for a year. I introduced Jack to a lot of the guys out here in California. And when it came down to Jack, I chased Jack. Okay? Jack went out, made a big score, didn't take care of me. And I told him to go fuck himself. And he was, by that time, he had an apartment upstairs of me. I told him, only one gangster is in Beverly Hills. I said, it's not you. I said, it's me. I want you out of this fucking building tomorrow morning. Next morning, there was a U all and he moved out. And uh, obviously, everybody knows that Jack was a rat. It's true. And uh, all the guys, I introduced the guys in California, and they called me and said, Hey, how come you introduced this guy? I didn't know he was a rat. <clears throat> but you know, these people, some of them still dealing with him. He's in the Dominican Republic, and I'm sure some of these recording artists are still sending him money. He said he was going to come here and kill me. Still waiting. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him to come kill me. Yeah, but um, obviously before things turned bad, for him to be staying with you for a year, you must have been close with him. And I mean, Jack's a very good talker. And like you said, he was extorting a lot of people, which requires a lot of skill in certain sense. Um, you were close then for a given Jack, period. You're, you're correct. Jack was a, a very good talker, very fast talker. He was a good looking boy. Uh, but, you know, eventually, everybody found out what he really is. The last time I talked to him, he tried to tell me it wasn't him. It was, they were talking to a reporter in New York. And somewhere online. And Jack tried to say, no, it wasn't me, it was Jimmy Hensel. He would try to blame Jimmy Henschel. When in fact, things, you know, that other guys did, like this here, Jack would take credit. That's where the fear. Jack, I doubt, has ever done a piece of work in his life. Well, like you said, he's a very slick talker. And another thing that he tries to take the credit for, that I believe that it was you that sort of uh, rectified the situation, was the Naomi Campbell stalker situation. Um, tell us the story there and whether it was you or Jack that sort of the situation and what the story what was. What happened was, Wyclef was good friends with Naomi Campbell. He called me up and told me she was being stalked and if I would help her. Gave me her phone number. And she happened to live behind the Beverly Hills Hotel. It was Christmas time. I had a date. I was early. 
So I went over to her house. Naomi was having a Christmas party. She greeted me at the door. We went in her office. She gave me what little information she had about the stalker. I had to find the stalker. That's the hard part, finding him. But I did. And I found him in Long Island, New York. And I sent two guys there. When they knocked on the door, the guy opened the door, they went right through. They sat him down in a chair and got me on the phone with him. And I had a talk with him. I said, listen to me. If you ever even think of Naomi at all, I said, take a look at those two gentlemen there. They're being nice to you today. The next time you see them, they will be the last faces on earth that you will see. He said, do we have an understanding? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so I took care of it. I called Wyclef. I said, Don, I took care of it. Guy's not going to bother no more. Jack's sitting on my couch. He moves to the dining room table. I'm watching all this. He calls Naomi and tells her he took care of it. And that's the only reason why I even mentioned her name in my book. Yeah, and like you said, he's a slick operator. He likes to take the credit for other people. And somebody you just mentioned there, who's another real infamous person in the hip hop world is Jimmy Henchman. Like you said, how did you know Jimmy? What were your dealings? With, with Jimmy and yeah, talk to us about Jimmy in general. Yeah, there was a story that John, uh, see, Jack didn't know the hotel, the area in New York, and what business I was doing in New York. Okay? Jimmy Henchman did, because Jimmy came to my hotel all the time when I got in New York. Jimmy and I would have dinner. He'd come to my hotel <clears throat> with his brother. You know, we were friends. Yeah, Jimmy's the real deal. And he's another one, and, like Shug, uh, who's obviously in a bad predicament at the moment. But in terms of your dealings with Jimmy, proper businessman, obviously he became very successful. It's tragic what's happened. Yeah. He's got life. Also. It's terrible what happened to these guys, but you know, that's part of the that's part of the deal. You know what I mean? You get caught, you're going to do time. Of course, of course, it's but a tragic Jack was, Jack was talking, he had the part in New York, he had the hotel wrong, and saying that there was like a shootout on the corner. There was no shootout. People like Jack. There's people out there that like him. People to fear him. He's in a Dominican Republican where he'll spend the rest of his life. I've seen. And so um, another infamous figure, like I said, you know, lots of infamous figures. And you recently even had them on your podcast on the YouTube channel, which is uh, Rick Ross. And we're not talking about the rapper. We're talking about the real Rick Ross you had on your YouTube channel. Oh, and Freeway. Yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Yeah. Freeway you- Ricky Ross is the real deal. He's a great guy. Uh, I actually met him through his good friend, Monty, 
while I was in Lampo. And it was something about a movie deal. And Monty asked me if I would talk to Ricky. I put Ricky's phone number on my on my list, got permission. I was able to call him. And Ricky and I were talking at that point. And then when I got out of prison, Ricky come over here. And you know, we we've been together several times. I just interviewed him. And he and I will be doing some other things together that's in the work. We're going to be doing some events together here in California. Fair play. He's another, you know, so many legends. Like I said, the Sunny Francis, the Jimmy Hedge, but even the Haitian Jack might be for the wrong reasons. But for people who don't know in England, the real Rick Ross, forget the rapper. If you've seen Snowfall recently, this is based on the real Rick Ross's story. He was the guy who... He was a real cocaine kingpin. And um, this was during the Iran-Contra, all that sort of stuff. Insane story. And um, so I recommend right. going over to Ori's channel to um, watch that. And uh, another fantastic story you've got, Ori, that, uh, like you said earlier, you're involved in the weed trade. So shout out to you. I'm a big advocate of the weed uh, in any way. So well done for pushing so much weed. And um, at a certain point, you ended up having a deal that sort of went wrong with one of the Mexican cartels. Um, talk to us about what went wrong and how you got involved with them and you're on the phone. Talk to us about oh, what Oh, boy, there. you got a good memory on that one, man. Yeah, you remember that one, huh? <laughs> yeah. What happened was I got word that there was 3,500 pounds of weed in a warehouse in the Bronx. What happened... When it crossed the border in Texas, the truck that brought the stuff to Chicago brought the wrong one to Chicago and sent the one that was supposed to go to Chicago, which was a lower end wheel. They sent it to the guy in Bronx who wanted a higher end weed. And the guy would not release it from the warehouse unless you took it off. He would not give you a sample. So I finally I had a couple guys. I'll never forget the day. I waited in the park in Brooklyn. I rented them a truck. They went to the Bronx. They picked it up. And then they drove. And then I had to, we parked. I went to the Holiday Inn at Kennedy Airport, parked the truck. And then we found a guy, a gal who was the wife of another famous recording artist, a divorce, she was divorced from him. And we used her garage out in Long Island. And when we cut through, that fucking weed was starting to rot. That's how long it was sitting in that warehouse. So it was not worth, these guys are trying to tell me that they wanted $550 a pound, when in fact it was not worth a hundred a pound. You had to cut the mold off, you had to do a lot of work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and when the Mexican brought it in, the driver, the truck driver who brought it, they were still with their fucking truck in New Jersey. And they're outside my hotel room every day. Not my room, out on the street corner. Over there on 54th and 6th in New York. Watch them every move. And 
their boss is going to kill them. So I met him at Proctor Park. I told the Mexican driver, meet me back. I want to talk to your boss. And it was a cartel leader. Because they were threatening to kill the fucking driver. Blame it on the driver. It was not the driver's fault. I told the guy, basically, I said, look it. I said, you want to kill me? Come and try. I said, I'll cut off your fucking balls. I don't care who you are or anything. Well, he had a son who had his own crew of Mexicans, and they did come after me. But I took care of that situation, too. And uh, they finally understood. I did give them some money, nowhere near what they expected. I set that up perfectly because I got into a place <coughs> over at Columbus Circle in New York, high-end hotel that had a Chinese restaurant like up on the 40th floor. You could not get a gun in there. You not get past security. So I had a guy just where I wanted him. And uh, no, we settled the dispute. And obviously you must have, as much as they weren't happy with what they got, it must have been settled, settled amicably because obviously you're still here today and obviously nothing's happened. So it did end up getting sorted and settled. Right. It, it got, yeah, it took some doing. But, you know, when I explained to them, here's the deal. This is what happened. It was not the driver's fault, not my fault. You give me shit weed. If it was good weed, you would have gotten the $500 a pound. I'll give you $100 a pound. You happy with it? So, I can imagine you did quite well off that deal. Very well. Yeah. And did you ever find out which cartel it was you were dealing with? Huh? Did you know no. which cartel? No. And um, talking about another very dangerous situation you're in at a certain point, um, obviously you mentioned that you and Sonny had 40, 50 year friendship, but at a certain point things soured slightly and it's alleged that did Sonny put a hit on you, is that true or what's the truth that, behind that he, situation? He, he, approved, he approved the hit on me. He approved the hit on me. How that happened was, and this is what eventually hurt Sonny Frances in the latter years of his life. You know, when they made him the underboss the last time of the Colombo family, his son came to me, Johnny. I flew to New York <clears throat> and tried to talk Sonny out of it. He's 90-something years old. I said, well, why are you taking this fucking job again? You don't need it. Don't do it, you're going to get in trouble. Nobody is good for us. Well, he took it. And then the number one guy he's got is a guy named Gaetano Pitaro. Guy Pitaro. If Sonny would have done any second, he would have found out that this guy was a fucking rat for the Drug Enforcement Agency 
before going over to the FBI. My Sonny was gonna propose this guy, told him who everybody and all the families is. Over 500 recordings. This is the guy that hurt Sonny more than his son. You know, his son, because it's his son, he gets the recognition, Johnny. But Guy Fatato hurt him more. I heard all the tapes as part of our discovery. And Guy Fatato, Sonny wanted me to meet him. He was sitting on my couch at the same time that a Jamaican boy who, who was big in the weed business and, and coke business got arrested. He had a half a million dollars on the streets in Brooklyn. I knew the guys who owed the money. We picked up some of it. They weren't out to fuck them. Uh, it just taking them longer to sell it because we were turning it into crack. And uh, this informant, you know, Ricky's wife came here with the two Mexicans. And the informant starts making a deal with him. And he says he wants 50 kilos every two weeks. These guys are not going to get nothing on the cup. There's no deal. But he sets it all up. There was no deal. He set nothing up. But when he went back to New York, he's talking to the acting captain, Michael Cotabano. Tell them all the money they're going to make with Ori on this big cocaine deal every two weeks. Now he's pumping Michael with all the money they're going to make. Now Michael's not seeing no money. He starts asking him what's going on with the deal, what's going on. And finally, Fatara said, Ori must have done the deal and he's fucking us <clears throat> out of the money. You got to remember. Michael and I never said one word to each other about this deal because there was no deal. But the two guys that got indicted for cocaine conspiracy was Michael and me because Guy Fatato had his boats on tape. And when, you know, Fatato says, or oh, he did, probably did the deal, fucked us out of the money. Michael went to Sonny to get permission to whack me, and Sonny gives it to him. And that's what I was pissed off about, Sonny. Because <clears throat> everything else, Sonny would call me up, all right, or send word, I need to meet you, come to New York and uh, have dinner, okay? And I would fly in. He didn't come to me and ask me. If he would have asked me, we never would have gotten fucking indicted. Course. And you know um, this old uh, rumor about the mafia not being involved in drugs? Because obviously, in years gone by, 20, 30 years ago, you might have been killed for been doing a, uh, a drug deal. But now the problem was you weren't giving some of the profits from the deal. So the, the mafia in sort of 10, 20 years ago, they had no qualms about being involved in drugs then. You know, that is so much bullshit. Yes, there is a rule that you're not supposed to deal drugs. But who started the fucking thing? 
Who started it with a heroin? It was Joe Bonanno who brought Carmen Galante to Sicily. And they controlled all the heroin coming into this country. It was started by the bosses. Of course. They probably did it to get rid of competition. They had it all to themselves. Yeah. And so, um, like you said, you mentioned, obviously, thank God you managed to rectify that situation. But do you think that um, Sonny was in the life way too long and ended up hurting a lot of people where, obviously, when you're in your 90s, you can't expect to have the same sharpness that you had earlier in your life. And obviously, he was making, he had John driving for him, who was a junkie. And even Michael could see this. Like he said, you, he's the last person you'd have driving for you. And he sort of was the architect of his own downfall in the end, uh, Sonny was. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were, there were times when Johnny was disappeared that, you know, M Michael and I were looking for him. You know, Michael and I would hook up together and look for Johnny when Johnny was out here. M Michael did try to help his brother as I tried to help Johnny. It just didn't no good. He was a junkie. But he did get sober. And I never sold him any fucking drugs. Michael knew that. But yet he said it. Wherever it derived from, it was wrong. We settled that. Michael also said I never knew his father. But if you go to stories with Ori, okay, there is, and it's a short one, listen to it. Michael was on Twitter with Grant Cardone with over 6,000 people in the room. Over 6,000. I, I must have got 100 texts of people asking me to come in. Now, if you know about Twitter audio, you could only have... 12 people on stage. Only 12 people could be talking, okay? I went in. They brought me up on stage right away. I told Michael, you're doing a good job. Michael, it's good to see you. And Michael come out. He said, oh, Ori, great to see you. Thank you for coming in. Tell everybody, Ori, my friends, for the family. For a long time, knew my father very well. <laughs> cool. So, you know, from one thing he says to another thing he says in front of 6,000 people. But people can listen to it. It's on Stories with Ori. It's one of my uh, things that I got posted there, as well as Freeway Ricky Ross. And I just did Cato Caitlin from the O.J. Simpson case. And that will be released in another week or two. Uh, so, you know, I still got a lot of interviews I've done. And my show is a lot different. Uh, you're not going to hear all gangster stuff all the time. And I'm not having other gangsters <laughs> on the show. Unless it's a gangster that comes from England. And I'll bring them in the studio. But as far as the gangsters here, no. Yep, fair play to you. And what about, what's the current state of the Mafia, uh, especially in New York, say, with the five families? 
are they dead? Is it still going? Are they involved? It, what would you say? Or obviously, you might not. It will never be or go back to what it used to be. Okay. Law enforcement has just got, they're just too good. They got all the time, all the money, and all the manpower. And, you know, they're not in control of the unions and things that they used to be in control of. Uh, what's going on with them? I got what they're doing. I heard they're making guys just to try to get guys to bring in money, okay? Not paying any attention to the old laws and rules of La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, no good. It's dead then. It's dead. Yeah. But um, So like you said, uh, obviously you just mentioned your YouTube channel. So guys, the link for his YouTube channel will be below. And where's the best place for people to get the Accidental Gangster, the book, Ori, that supports you best? Is it Amazon or have you got a website that you can give signed uh, copies out for on? For autographed copies, go to my website, theaccidentalgangster.com. Otherwise, you know, uh, I know shipping to England is quite expensive. All right. But, uh, you know, I've sold a lot of books in England and I want to thank all you who had purchased my book over there. You know, and there's a lot in there about Joey Pyle. You're going to want to read about him. Freddie Foreman, I think, and, you know, other gangsters that I knew. And uh, so, and hopefully, folks, maybe in the next year or so, Joey Pyle and others in England. That'd be brilliant. Get it organized and let me know any way that I can support you. And exactly, I will. Don't delay it. You have John Elwood's phone number? Yeah, I'll send it to you straight yeah, after. Send it to me, would you please? Yeah, so he's doing a lot of that stuff at the moment. So get on to him. Let's get something organized. Yeah. All right. Well, look, uh, Ori, I'd like to massively thank you again for the opportunity. And like I said, guys, Ori was the first person that was interviewed on the channel. Um, so never be forgotten anything i can ever do to help the cause or i will and absolute pleasure to chat to you as always so um thank you very much my friends enjoy the rest of your day thank you and you know i gotta tell you you're one of the best of what you do i love those clips how you do them the shorts uh so you're awesome at what you do god bless all my love and respect to you my friend same to you and uh, yeah all, right. all love and respect to you and your family Ori. thank all you right. very much my friends take care now Cheers, all right. Bye-bye.